morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're all ready to go to war after hearing that battle music, I'm sure. Um, I am curious to know if there was a battle for your heart when you walked in and saw that the chairs had been shifted, right? I, I was talking uh, before the service, and I think it goes back to us all being scarred as children when we played musical chairs and we got shoved out of a chair at some point and now we just battle at a heart level for, for seating for the rest of our lives and that's why we have things like calling shotgun and, and why uh, your heart may, may have experienced some angst this morning. Uh, we're, we're in week three of a series through the book of Proverbs and uh, if you weren't around for the first couple of weeks, I would encourage you to go back and listen because uh, some of what we talked about in the first couple of weeks uh, established some framing in terms of where we're going with this series. Uh, none of us uh, lives a stationary life. Uh, we're all on the move. Uh, even if you feel like you're stuck, like your, your life is not moving forward, you're still on the move. You're, you're on a path. The question is not, are we on a path? It's where is that path leading us? We're becoming who we who we will be this very day, and God knows that, and he cares, which is why he's given us the wisdom literature in the Bible, and specifically the book of Proverbs. We desperately need the wisdom of God, and, and here's the deal. It, it's not offered, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it's not offered to the scoffer, it's not offered to the unteachable, it's not offered to the impossible to correct, the easily offended, rather it's offered to the humble to the teachable, to, to those who understand that they haven't yet arrived. The wisdom of God is, is offered to those who have a healthy fear of the Lord. It comes when we see Jesus like Peter saw Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, where he says, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I love him. I've got to be close to him. I've got to wrap my arms around him. I've got to experience intimacy with him. And yet the thought of his drawing near creates in me a, a deep reverence and humility because I'm not the king, he is. That's where the eyes to see comes from. That's where wisdom begins. Last week, we sought the wisdom of God as it pertains to the tongue. And, and again, go back and listen to the first two weeks because we don't have time to unpack all the particulars of how to come at the, the book of Proverbs uh, from an interpretive standpoint. But for the sake of this morning, suffice it to say that we desperately need the Holy Spirit, that when you engage the book of Proverbs, oftentimes it's not black and white. Uh, rather, we need the work of the Spirit to move because we find ourselves in different situations where different Proverbs hit us at different points. We find our, our hearts at different places existentially as we move through life in which different Proverbs hit us in certain ways. So we need the Spirit of God as we jump in this morning. So with that disclaimer thrown in, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Uh, you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. We're happy that you're exploring the truth claims of Christianity on your time, uh, your own time, so that, that Bible's yours. Let me just pray for us, and we'll go ahead and jump in because we've got a great deal of work to, to jump into. God, thank you so much for this book of the Bible. Holy Spirit, we need you. You are not the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity. God, the Spirit, we deeply need you to move in our hearts. We de deeply need you to awaken our minds this morning to the glory of God and the wonder of the gospel. Would you do that, Holy Spirit? Would you come in power? Would you do what only you can do? I can't do that. I can't awaken hearts um, in my own strength and power. So God, would you do that? And would you first and foremost awaken my own heart? I pray that this would be 
a sermon that would first be preached to myself. I love you. Lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, now, now this morning we are going to talk about the topic of money. And so I think it's important to throw out a few disclaimers before we jump into this thing. And so here we go. Number one, we cannot possibly cover an entire theology of money this morning. We don't even have time to get to all the Proverbs in this particular book of the Bible that drive at this topic of money, let alone what the entire Bible has to say about money. Scholars have written books unpacking an entire biblical theology of money and possessions. And if you want to engage that from Genesis to Revelation, I'm happy to point you to those resources. If we did that, we would likely be here until Jesus returns. We would have to order in for lunch, and so we're not going to we're not going to attempt to do that. So don't, don't view this morning as the end-all, be-all on what God has to say about the topic of money and possessions. My goal is to simply address the major themes in this particular book of the Bible. Number two, some of us are currently working with faulty categories as it pertains to money and possessions. There are some who believe that with a little more faith, just a little bit more, that God will open up the storehouses. Believe this message, and God will give you health and wealth. It's called the prosperity gospel, and it's a lie. It's the kind of theology that makes God a stepping stone, a means to get that what you really want, which isn't ultimately him. It's stepping on God's head to to get your idol, so to speak. And Jesus is not interested in writing the checks for our idols. There are others who believe that money is bad, and so are those who have it. And so the goal is to, to live an impoverished monastic life, that God loves those who would uh, live their lives in that way. After all, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, and we see his encounter with, with the rich young ruler. It's called the poverty gospel, and it's just as problematic at times as the prosperity gospel is. These, these lines in the sand confuse our thinking when it comes to the topic of money. The reality is this. There are righteous, wealthy people those who gain their wealth righteously through working hard, investing wisely, and those who steward their, their wealth righteously, budgeting well, paying taxes, giving generously. Biblical examples would include Joseph of Arimathea, who gifted his tomb to Jesus, who didn't have a tomb of his own. Lydia, in the book of Acts, who significantly helped to fund Paul's church planting uh, pioneering work. There are also unrighteous wealthy, those who gain their wealth sinfully, stealing, through dishonest business practices and who steward their wealth sinfully, hoarding and building their own kingdoms because money is their God and theirs is the kingdom that matters, not the kingdom of God. Biblical examples of the unrighteous wealthy would be uh, the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus because the price was right. And, And then there are the righteous poor, Those who gain what they have righteously, albeit a small amount, through honest hard work, and who steward what they have righteously, living within their means, giving out of their poverty, finding contentment in the little that they've been given to steward. Examples of the righteous poor would be Ruth and Naomi in the Old Testament, the widow in Mark chapter 12 who gave out of her poverty, Jesus, great example of the righteous poor. And then there is the unrighteous poor, those who seek to gain more through sinful means, through freeloading, through stealing, and who steward what they have sinfully, living lazily, spending foolishly, hoarding what little they have, coveting what others have because they want their own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. Examples of the unrighteous poor biblically would be the the sluggard in the book of Proverbs, who we'll look at this morning, as well as the fool in the book of Proverbs. And so as we dive in this morning, Ask yourself, do my categories need to just be blown up 
Do they need to have a, a TNT attached and just press down and just, just blow them out of the water so that we can better understand what God has to say about this particular topic? Don't let your categories fog up your interpretive glasses this morning would be one way to say it. And then the third disclaimer would be this. The residual sin in our hearts really puts us behind the eight ball this morning. In our culture, money means more than currency. It means significance to us. It equals meaning. What you have determines who you are. And so the world is divided into the haves and the have-nots, and no one wants to be a have-not. So to say anything countercultural about money presses on our desire to be a have rather than a have-not. And as a result, here's the reality, and the same is true for me. You will function as the greatest enemy of your own joy this morning. You'll, you'll hear some of these truth statements as it pertains to, to money, and, and you'll bristle. You'll, you'll tense up. You'll dismiss the very truth statements that are meant to increase your joy in God because they feel threatening to you. And so uh, my plea with you before we even jump into a, a particular verse of the Bible this morning would be don't let your fickle heart get in the way of, of God's joy for you this morning in his glory. And, and while we're on that topic, don't let the church's historical poor handling of the topic of money get in the way either. Let's be honest. Some of you hear me say that we're going to talk about this, this uh, money this morning, and all of a sudden, your muscles get a little more, more tense. Somewhere along the way, you, you had a church leader um, that tried to motivate you with something other than the gospel. Usually happens when the leadership of the church goes into a panic trying to make budget, and all of a sudden the motivators of guilt and shame come out to play rather than the motivating power of the gospel. And so the word money becomes a, a trigger word that causes us to tense up. It causes us to bristle, to put up our defenses, so to speak. And as a result of the church's damaged reputation in our fickle hearts, again, we're, we're a little bit behind the eight ball. And so we really need a miracle. We need a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We need God to reveal the true condition of our hearts as they are this morning and, and to help us not to use the church's previous poor handling of this topic as an excuse not to walk in faith and repentance. And so with all that being said, we're going to jump into Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. Here's where we're going this morning. We're, we're going to go at this through the lens of creation, fall, redemption. And so when you look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, it says this, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. That everything you and I possess is a gracious blessing from God. And not just money, not just possessions, but the next breath that you're going to breathe a few seconds from now. That's a gracious blessing and gift from the Lord. God owns everything, and he allows us to steward what he entrusts to us for his glory. Psalm 24, verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God says the deed for creation is in my name. I own all of the world, all of the property, all of the possessions, all of the money, all of the resources. He says it this way in Psalm chapter 50. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. That God owns everything. And what that means for you and me is that we're not owners, we're stewards. We're caregivers. We've been put in charge of some things that are ultimately God's. In the creation account, God gave man a cultural mandate. Genesis 1.28 says it this way. Be fruitful and multiply, God says, and fill the earth and subdue it. 
God says, the world and all of its fullness are mine, yes, but I'm going to make human beings stewards of that which is mine. Job understood this when uh, his children and possessions were taken from him, and he responded by saying this, chapter 1, verse 21 of Job, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job says, God's good. He gave me some things to steward that weren't mine to begin with. Those things have been taken away, and God's still good. Paul understood this when he said to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 6, 7, we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, that that God is the owner. We're simply stewards of his creation. Here's the deal. If we understood that, and it worked its way not just uh, into our minds, our confessional theology, what we say we believe, but actually penetrated our hearts, if we, if we understood the opportunity that we've been given to steward a little bit of God's everything, then we'd acknowledge things like this. My time is not my own. It's not that God gets Sunday and a couple hours for a community group gathering and the rest is mine, but rather all of my time has been entrusted to me by God for his glory to steward. Every decision that I make with my time matters to God. My spouse is not my own. She belongs to God. The question is, how am I going to leverage my marriage for his glory? My kids are not my own. They ultimately belong to God. He has allowed me to play with them for a season. But the question is really, as a steward of the precious little girls that God's entrusted me with, how am I going to treat them? How am I going to raise them in a way that glorifies God and points them to the cross of Christ? My house is not my own. It ultimately belongs to God. He's entrusted me with a little bit of square footage. And the question is, how am I going to use that square footage to leverage it for his glory? And in the same way, my money is not my own. It's not that God owns 10% of my money. And once I give him that, the other 90 is mine to do whatever I want with. But rather, he owns all of it. The question is, as a steward of of that which God has entrusted me with, what am I going to do with with 100% of what God has entrusted me with? Not just the 10 the, the fact that, that God invites us to steward a little bit of his everything is a great privilege. Do you believe that? Do, do you even think categorically in that way? It's what God had in mind from the very beginning. Well, look at this. Genesis 131. Many of us know this verse. God saw everything that he had made in, in light of the creation process, and behold, it was very good. When, when we think about creation and the good things God made, we tend to think categorically of the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the cosmos. We think of uh, the land and the waters and the skies and all of the creatures that inhabit those domains. And ultimately, we tend to think of the crown and glory of God's creation, human beings as image bearers. But uh, have you ever noticed this? This is kind of crazy. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, according to the Bible, precious jewels, gold, Silver were a part of God's declared good creation before sin entered the world. Look at this up on the screen. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. That God created the earth's mantle with the capability of forming diamonds, and he declared it to be good. God created the earth's crust with the ability of forming rubies and emeralds, and he declared it to be good. God created a world filled with wheat fields 
and orchards and red roses and, and a number of things of value, of great value, and he declared it to be good. That the problem is not God, nor is it his creation. The, the Gnostics bought into this idea that the material world is evil and it's to be escaped, including the human body, that if we didn't have human bodies, physical bodies, we wouldn't struggle with the sins of, of lust, of, of gluttony, of drunkenness, of murder, and so forth and so on. And so the idea is to escape the body because it corrupts the spirit. That's what the Gnostics believed. But the Bible teaches something altogether different, does it not? That God created everything in the material world and declared it to be good. That the problem is not God, nor is it his creation. Going back to last week, we talked about this in great detail, that the problem is the human heart. And we're going to get there this morning. Um, that we take those things that God declared good and we use them to try to fill the emptiness. We, we use them to try to find meaning and significance in this life. We use them to try to, to figure out our identity. We bind to the lie that they can provide us with true security. Money is one of those things really high up on the list that we deify, which is why uh, Jesus uh, spoke about money in, in the parables more than any other topic as you look at the Gospels. It's why the book of Proverbs is loaded with verses having to do with money and possessions, more than we could possibly even get to this morning. Going back to last week, we, we talked about the reality as we looked at the tongue that word problems are heart problems. I want to bring you back around to the passage we looked at last week in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45, where Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of, the evil of his, uh, out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mentioned last week that if you have a bad fig tree in your backyard that's producing withered, inedible figs, that what you don't do to rectify that problem is go to the fresh market, buy a bunch of ripened figs, and staple them to your dead fig tree in the backyard. That that might work for a moment as your neighbors pass by um, jogging or pushing their babies in their strollers and they look out on your backyard, they might um, be pacified by the fact that your ugly dead fig tree is dead no more. But the problem with that is those fresh ripened figs that you've stapled to that tree are going to die pretty quickly because they're not connected to the tree and all of its nutrients, number one. And number two, the next batch of figs are going to be just as dead as the current batch of figs because you haven't addressed a change at the tree in its root. Throughout the course of this proverb series, I said this last week, the goal is not to go into fig stapling mode. We're not after behavior modification as a church here. We're after getting under the dirt and getting at the heart so that we see heart change empowered by the gospel. That's what we're going for. It would be disastrous for you and I to approach a particular series like this one as we go through the book of Proverbs and focus on externals with respect to each of these topics, all the while neglecting what's under the dirt at a heart level. In the same way that word problems are ultimately heart problems, the same is true of money. Money problems are heart problems at the root. And so here's what I'd like to do for the next few minutes. If we can use kind of that word picture that Jesus paints for us in Luke chapter 6, I'd like to point out some of the withered, dried-out figs that, that we may see above the dirt in our lives, some of the externals as it pertains to the decisions we make with money. 
and use that to diagnose our hearts. And then I want to get below the dirt for a few minutes and get after the heart itself. So over the course of the next few minutes, take note of, of these withered figs, so to speak, and, and write them down. When you see one that you go, yep, there's where my depravity comes to bear. That's, there's where the Holy Spirit needs to, to do some heart work in me. Write that down because we're going to come back around to that when we get under the dirt in a moment. So here we go. We're going to blaze through these. First of all is the withered fig of greed, of hoarding. We know that hoarding is a withered fig. We know that greed is a withered fig because of verses like these. Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. I don't know what comes to mind for you, but immediately it's Ebenezer Scrooge for me coming out of the Christmas holiday season. I just picture this miserly person who, who struggles with compassion towards other people. Um, someone who's difficult to be around, never content, always looking for the next dollar so that they can hoard it. There's never enough. I must have more becomes the, the mantra uh, for people who have this withered fig in their lives. When, when that's your motto, generosity becomes a four-letter word, does it not? It threatens your bottom line. It gets in the way of your kingdom. Yet God calls his people not to greed, but to generosity. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-seven says it this way. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. You might say it this way. Blessed are those who steward what they have generously for the glory of God. Cursed are those who hoard what they have greedily for the glory of self. Proverbs 28, 22 says it this way. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. That, that's the nature of the upside-down kingdom of God, that those who fixate on building their own kingdoms will have no kingdom in the end. Meanwhile, those who fixate on the kingdom of God will spend eternity in the presence of the king, which makes them the richest people in all of the world. <laughs> Greed is a withered fig. Generosity is a ripened fig. Number two, the withered fig of deceitful gain. We know that deceitful gain is a withered fig because of verses like these. Proverbs 10.2 says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. That You can lie and cheat your way to a good bank balance, and many have done it. And in the end, it cannot deliver you from death, Proverbs says. In fact, it will hand you over to death. This is one of the most poetic Proverbs in, in all of this book of the Bible. Proverbs 20 verse 17 says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man. But afterward, his mouth will be full of gravel. This takes us back to the poem in chapter 9, the first week of this series, does it not? Where Lady Folly declares that stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But the one who turns into her home does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. That Just like Satan, Lady Folly sweeps the connection between sin and death under the rug. The punishment is, is really fitting, is it not? When you look at this, according to this Proverbs, uh, a man who uses his deceptive mouth to gain wealth will break his teeth in the end. That's the justice, the perfect justice of God, that what now uh, tastes sweet today will, will once have the, the flavor of death to it for those who lie, who cheat, who steal their way to the top. And choosing wisdom over deceitful gain is so aligned with the heart of God that the author of Proverbs says this 
Proverbs chapter 28, verse 6. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Better to have a less than stellar bank balance and to have acquired it honestly than great wealth acquired through deceitful gain. Blessed are those who walk with integrity, who sow righteousness for the glory of God. Cursed are those who deceive their way through life for the glory of self. Proverbs 21.6 says it this way. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Again, it's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Those who deceive others for the sake of their own kingdom will have no kingdom in the end. Meanwhile, those who sow righteousness will spend eternity in the presence of the righteous king, Jesus, which makes them the richest people in all of the world. Deceitful gain is a withered fig. Integrity is a ripened fig. Number three, the withered fig of sloth. And when I say sloth, I'm driving at the idea of abdicating the responsibility to carry out the cultural mandate in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to work diligently for the glory of God. We know that this is the withered fig because of verses like this. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Here you have an agricultural proverb, and the idea is pretty simple. Right? It's not an absolute promise, but normatively, we reap what we sow. Very simply put, if you work hard to till the soil, you will enjoy the harvest when all is said and done. Look at these two poetic word pictures in the book of Proverbs, and notice the contrast between the two. One is positive, and one is very depressing and negative. The first one is this, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. I love this passage. It says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, any officer, any ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That There are ants on this planet that work more diligently than image bearers of God. There are ants on this planet that work more diligently than a lot of millennials. It is amazing to me that ants are the grace of God to lazy people. You ever wondered if ants have a purpose? They do. It's so that sluggards can walk by and be awakened from their slumber, from their laziness. It's crazy that that every anthill declares, look, this is the way I've designed the world to work. Take a look, peer in. Try not to get bitten when you do, but take a look closely. And then in contrast, chapter 22 gives us a negative word picture. It says this, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. If you've ever read or or seen the Lorax, and shame on you if you haven't done one of the two, it's this contrasting picture between the land filled with truffula trees, which is the land of the fruitful ants at work, and and the lifeless barren land of the onceler, overgrown with thistles and, and thorns. Blessed are those who work diligently for the glory of God those who don't abdicate the responsibility to carry out the cultural mandate in Genesis 1 and 2. 
Sloth is a withered fig, Proverbs says. Diligence is a ripened fig. Number four, the withered fig of cutting corners. Similar to the withered fig of sloth, it goes a step further in terms of, of activity. Uh, the, this person's a little more active than, than the person who functions as the sluggard. Just not all the way to diligence. doesn't go that far. So this is the, the withered fig that represents the get-rich-quick mentality. We know that cutting corners is a withered fig because of verses like these. Proverbs 13, 11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Proverbs 21, uh, 21 says this, an inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. The, the idea is that we gather provision through, through virtue rather than through the vice of get-rich-quick schemes, that, that if it's stamped with the phrase easy money, it just might be Lady Folly inviting you into her house. There's something honorable, there's something noble about plowing the soil and reaping the harvest. That's, again, the normative way that God has designed the world to work. Blessed are those who don't cut corners, who don't bank their future on easy money. Cutting corners is a withered fig. Lifelong faithfulness to plowing the soil is a ripened fig. Next up on the list, the withered fig of living above your means. Uh-oh. Welcome to Peachtree City. This one might touch on our hearts. Proverbs says this in chapter 13, verse 7. One pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. This is the idea of keeping up with the Joneses. It's buying the next thing so that you don't get left behind. Yet, yet in the end, it's crushing, is it not? Look at my amazing home, and yet I can't afford groceries to fill the pantry of that home. Look at my amazing car, yet we're up to debt in our eyeballs, and no one knows it but us. Proverbs 22.7 says it this way, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. That Blessed are those who are not enslaved to debt for the sake of trying to keep up with their neighbor. Blessed are those who have the sensibility to live within their means. Trying to keep up with the Joneses is a withered fig. Living within your means is a ripened fig. Number six, the withered fig of poor planning. Proverbs 21.20 says this, Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. The, the fool gets so caught up in the moment that, that he or she is unable to look forward, to think forward. It's all about the here and now. No preparation for the loss of a job uh, the breakdown of a car, so forth and so on. It, the, the mantra becomes, we have it, so let's spend it. Let's spend it right now. There's something honorable, Proverbs says, about forward thinking. There's something honorable uh, about planning in ways that don't undermine your trust in the Lord, ultimately. Uh, Proverbs 13.22 says this, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. That there's something God-honoring about thinking about your kids and then thinking about their kids. There's something God-honoring about providing for those you love long after you're gone. This doesn't happen without purposeful planning in a way that ultimately trusts in God's sovereign plan. Number seven, the withered fig of extremism. This goes back to the prosperity and poverty gospels. Um, the only prayer that you will find in the entire book of Proverbs is found in chapter 30 verses 7 through 9, where the author says this, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. That's the first one. 
And secondly, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And, and here's, the, here's the deal. With respect to this prayer, the author of Proverbs is not saying that prosperity is bad, nor is he saying that poverty is bad in and of themselves. They're not. He's acknowledging that his heart is wicked beyond measure, and he knows the tendencies of his heart. He knows how deep the rabbit hole of his own depravity goes at the end of the day. And so he says, please, God, come alongside me very pragmatically in this way to help my heart. He also understands that in light of who God is, the gap between rich and poor is actually quite small. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 2 says this, The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Um, it, it, it goes back to the way we think about sin. Um, we, uh, we see this great gap when we measure ourselves to other people. I'm not as sinful as that person. I mean, I may not be the saint that this person is, but I'm not that bad. And then all of a sudden we get a glimpse of holy God and we realize how deeply we need the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God in our lives. The same is true as it pertains to money and possession. When we look at our, our neighbors, we, we see the gap. It, it seems um, monumental to us until we look at the God who created everything and says, I own it all. God levels the playing field when we look at him rather than one another. And then there's the withered gap, uh, the withered fig, I should say, of overestimating money's value. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 say this, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. That wisdom is more valuable than money. I think we have to ask ourselves, the, the degree to which we desire money, do, do we see a, a more heightened desire for wisdom in our lives? Because the Bible says there's, there's a great deal more value in obtaining wisdom. Same thing with, with knowledge. Proverbs 20, 15 says, there is golden abundance of costly stones, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Same thing with a God-honoring reputation. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Same thing with a good woman, fellas. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 and 11, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. In other words, if you're growing in wisdom, you're rich. If you're growing in the knowledge of the truth of God, you're rich. If you bear the name of Christ, if Christ is your reputation, you're rich according to the Bible. If you manage to snag a spouse who loves Jesus, you're rich. Overestimating money's value is a withered fig, and close to it on the tree is the withered fig of false security. This is the last one that I'll go through with us this morning. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 11 says this, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall is his imagination. That It's delusional, Proverbs says, to think that money can save you. And there are many in this world who think this way. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28 says it this way, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. This one is for those like me who look at your bank balance way too often. 
You, you just you, you can't help yourself. You got to log in all the time because uh, your your bottom line is really your functional savior. If you're honest, your heart doesn't ultimately trust in God. We we, we have to wrestle with that question: Who sits on the throne? Because Jesus is really clear that he and money can't both cohabit that throne. There's only room for for one sheriff in town. Now, here's the deal. Hopefully, as we we work through those, and that doesn't even cover all of the quote-unquote withered figs having to do with money in the book of Proverbs. That's just us skimming the surface of this book of the Bible. But I, I hope that you're seeing some of those withered figs on the tree of your life as you sit in, in your seat right now, but that's not uh, where we want to end this thing. Again, all that does is make you want to go to the, the spiritual version of the fresh market and go into stapling mode to try to fix the externals and modify your behavior. The question becomes, are you going to grab that staple gun or are you really interested in heart-level change motivated and empowered by the gospel? If you're interested in getting to the root, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit with the following statement. I'm going to throw it up on the screen for us. The statement is this, I struggle with the withered fig of blank because I ultimately seek blank and believe money can provide it. How would you fill in that sentence? The first blank has to do with what's above the dirt. It has to do with the list that we just worked our way through. So, so what do you put in that first blank? I struggle with the withered fig of blank. The, the second blank can typically be narrowed down to four possible options. The primary motivators for financial decisions under the dirt at a heart level typically tend to be, and I'll put them up on the screen for you, control, or another way we could say it is security, comfort, or another way we could say it is freedom, power, or another way we could say it is status, and lastly, approval, or another way we could say it is love. These heart-level motivators are at the root of most of our financial decisions. And so let, let me just give you a couple of examples of how you could fill in these blanks. Um, you might say it this way. I struggle with the withered fig of hoarding because I ultimately seek control, security, and believe money can provide it. Or perhaps this would be how you'd fill in the blank. I struggle with the withered fig of living above my means because I ultimately seek approval, love, and believe money can provide it. Let me come back and, and allow you to fill in the blanks. I struggle with the withered fig of blank. What, what do you put in that blank? Because I ultimately seek blank and believe money can provide it. See, here, here's the deal. Every one of those statements that you fill, fill in is an anti-gospel. You cannot declare the truth of the gospel to yourself if you can't pinpoint the anti-gospels. So we're after what's under the dirt. And not so that we can just leave you there with, with that sentence filled in in the blanks, devastated. The gospel actually speaks a better word. 2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That Jesus set aside the crown the, the throne, the scepter, and entered into the impoverished slums of human history to live the life that you and I could never live, a sinless, perfect life. No, no withered figs, 
No corruption at, at, at a heart level in Jesus' life. He died the death that we deserve to die. Our sins were put upon him, and he was punished in our place. He took on our corruption so that we might be restored to God. He died for our greed. He died for our deceit. He died for our sloth. He died for our failure to find our ultimate security in God. And by grace, through faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we're declared children of God. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Because of the gospel, you don't have to look to money to take away the emptiness. You don't have to look to money to find meaning, significance, identity in this world. You don't have to look to money to provide you with true security. Let me bring up those four gospel motivators on the screen again and notice what it looks like to preach the gospel to yourself in light of everything we've been saying this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ proves that God cares for you and gives you eternal security. The cross of Jesus Christ affords you the ultimate freedom, freedom from your sin and yourself. The cross of Jesus Christ affords you a remarkable status as a child of God, a co-heir with Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ speaks over you the greatest words of approval imaginable. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. When our hearts are faced with the anti-gospels of power, comfort, control, and approval, We've got to be armed with the truth necessary to declare the gospel to our fickle hearts that Jesus is enough in those moments. Do you see why it has so much more to do with the all-encompassing life? Do you see why the Christian life is so, uh, so much more complex than just a Sunday gathering? Because here's what's going to happen. On Tuesday, you're going to be tempted to trust in money as your ultimate security. And on Tuesday you're going to have to declare the truth of the gospel that your security is rooted in the person and work of Jesus ultimately. You're going to be tempted two months from now to cut corners on your taxes, some of you. And you're going to need to declare the truth of the gospel that you don't have to buy into the withered fig of cutting corners because of who Christ is and what he's done for you in that moment. That it goes so much further than the church gathered on Sunday and us just in one ear and out the other and move on to the next topic. Rather, what we're trying to do is arm you with, with truth, with, with declarative statements of truth that you can aim like an arrow at your heart when your heart fails to believe what you confess to believe at a, at a mind and a confessional level. That's what we're after. That's what we're after every week in this series for you. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, We'll have some time. You, you, you may be wondering, why are the chairs different than they were last week? Um, we're, we're actually purposefully trying to create more space so that um, you don't feel obligated to come row by row like we kind of do. You know, it's like this row, then that row, then that row, then that row. But have the space to, to spend time with the Lord and to um, confess sin and, and ask him to um, work by the power of the gospel in our hearts before we come and receive communion. So take the time to, to do that this morning and allow the gospel uh, to fuel that time with you. Sit with the beauty of the reality that God cares for you deeply and provides you with eternal security. Sit with the beauty of the reality that, that God in Christ affords you the ultimate freedom, the ultimate status 
as a co-heir with Christ, the ultimate words of approval. Sit with the wonder of the gospel and then come and take the bread and dip it in the cup. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're not a Christian, my hope is that you're experiencing a more robust understanding of what the Christian life is really about this morning and that you see the difference between the ripened nature of the Christian life and the withered nature of a life outside of Christ, and that you turn to him this morning and trust in him, and that he changes your heart and gives you a new one at the root, and that you then come and take communion with us as as a member of the family of God for the first time. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.